Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Aspion Torvang... Torvagna? Ah, I messed that up. Aspla? No, you do it. I can't do it. Aspion Torvango. Okay. I practice that loads, and I normally I get something vaguely akin to a name. I had it all right in practice, didn't I? But then I, when it comes to the real deal, I messed it up. So, But anyway, we know who you are now. And we're going to be talking about historical responsibility for carbon emissions or responsibility for historical carbon emissions, depending on how you look at it. God, this is an intro to die for, isn't it? True professionals take note, step over and let the amateurs take over. Right. Your paper discusses who basically is responsible for cleaning up yesterday's mess. That's the core of it, right? That's correct. Okay. Do you want to start by giving us the title of the paper and where it's published? Yeah, the paper is named What If Country Commitments for CO2 Removal Were Based on Responsibility for Historical Emissions. And this is published in the journal Energies in May this year. I've not heard of that journal. Is it any good? Well, uh, I think that is a reasonable, reasonable st- standing in, 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 uh, in um, terms of uh, peer-reviewed journals. Of course, as indicated by the title, it's, it's aimed somewhat more to the, uh, to the um, energy issues in, in a broad sense. Well, curiously, nature energy actually has higher metrics than nature nature, which is quite impressive. So there's, you can go quite a long way up in the energy field. So you're looking at the, the way that we're responsible for cleaning up the mess, right? So what's the kind of traditional oldie-worldy way of organizing this? Actually, I don't think there's any good way or, or any way of uh, kind of... Or, or, um... Isn't there an IPCC standard for these kind of things i wouldn't say so maybe i should first you say that this is actually this paper is actually coming two parts from me coming together because i started in the 90s with asking the question how would a fair global treaty look like in terms of reducing national emissions of co2 or greenhouse gas emissions primarily co2 emissions so that's one one kind of one strand the second strand is what happened after the special report by the ipcc on 1.5 that came out in 2018, where really this, the big message or one of the big messages where, well, we are not going to be able to reduce our emissions fast and sufficiently enough to do the Paris Agreement target, which is 1.5 and, and at least have a warming less than 2 degrees. So we need massive amounts of CO2 removal, which means taking CO2 from the atmosphere and putting it somewhere else, preferably permanently. And this paper is actually a kind of effort in a what if, let's say, experiment. In a sense, it's a kind of thought experiment. Can we combine this, this, these two strands? How can we handle mess we have had historically because we have emitted too much CO2 to be able to even meet the two degrees likely by by end of this century? How can we handle that? And how how could we? Who should be responsible to remove CO2 from the atmosphere so that we are able to meet two degrees? And how? What kind of principles, fairness principles, should that be based on? And in a paper, I really use one principle because I think that is really what is most, let's say, most relevant here and probably easiest to defend if you, do, if, if you want to have a broad support to this, namely what is referred to as responsibility. In a sense, this is one variant of put it to pace. Uh, what's the, what's the re- received wisdom or common practice in terms of dividing up responsibility for carbon dioxide removal because it, it's quite a fraught topic, isn't it? I mean, it's not obvious who's responsible for emissions in 1950. 
exactly. Now that so I would say that uh, really discussions also in in the kind of UNFCCC or Climate Convention Paris Agreement uh, context has has not really arrived at that issue. You know, they they have barely started to discuss how can we kind of account for CO two removals. How can we? What kind of standardized uh, rule book should we have for this? What about permanency and all these issues? They're really not really decided on on rules for that, and and so so really the kind of issue on who should do what and and, and share out or clear up in this mess is not really on the table. And then and then you should also remember, well, there was a big change from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement in terms of also reducing emissions because in the in the Kyoto Protocol, we had the kind of global carbon budget in a sense, and then it was shared out on, on, on countries of the world. Whereas you can compare to the Paris Agreement now, which is more, in a sense, it's more bottom-up. It's countries are saying, well, we, want, we, we are able to contribute this and this and this. So it's a kind of bottom-up. So there's a really not any, I would say, strong fairness principles on the top either, even in terms of reducing CO2 emissions. Well, can you give us a whistle-stop tour of some of the ways that people have sought to divvy up responsibility for carbon dioxide removal. Why they, this is not discussed? Well, I just want to understand. I mean, my, my, think, my thinking on this, and I confess it's not an area that I'm an expert in by any means, is that, that you've got countries might divide it up by the size of the economy, the size of their current emissions, the size of their historical emissions. They, they might divide it up by voluntary commitments, you know, all of these have got some pretty obvious disadvantages. And I wanted you to discuss the methods that people have considered and the pros and cons dividing up responsibility. Well, uh, as I said, there are a few journals or articles that have discussed the kind of this, these issues on, let's say, the, what would be suitable fairness principles or relevant to use in terms of CO2 removal. But there's been much, much longer discussion in terms of CO2, reducing CO2 emissions. And and I, th- I think you mentioned the main ones. Uh, you have the one that uh, are em- emphasizing the responsibility. Those who have emitted most should reduce most, kind of obvious, right? And then you have the kind of ability to pay, which is that the richest should do more. So often that is, that's, that is defined or associated with the GDP per capita. So the richest in that sense should reduce most. And then you kind of have this equal rights for emissions saying that, well, in, in a one or two, maybe a couple of decades, these emissions should be shared out equally per capita globally. So that's the kind of main three equity principles that have been used. Well, my understanding of it is the way that things have been organized in Paris and generally beyond is that you have a tier of developing countries that are not expected to do much and you have a tier of developed countries and they're expected to reduce their emissions steadily. Is that right or not? Yeah, that's right. You know, this goes back to the start in actually in, in uh, 1992, the Climate Convention, where they, they basically the countries were divided into two groups. One, one is, let's say, the industrialized countries, which then have more commitments or clear roles in commitments to reduce their emissions. And then you have the developing countries that uh, is more like, let's say, more voluntary contributions made more on a voluntary basis. And, and this is also basically the same picture you have from the Kyoto Protocol in 98 whereas now in the paris agreement i would say that it's it's not as big a difference between the developed and the developing countries it's more like everybody's supposed to do their voluntary commitments but in a sense it's more like you expect less commitments and less efforts by the developing countries 
And also that there is this anticipation of that, well, if developed countries, industrialized countries, can can support financially and otherwise the developing countries, they would be able to do more. So how is the distinction between industrial and developing countries made in this? Because you've got countries like China, for example, which you know, were historically quite low income and now very heavily industrialized. They're not as high GDP per capita, but they have very high emissions because they're very industrial. You know, the, the idea of using industrialized as a proxy for the level of development of a country kind of breaks down when it comes to China because China's you know, more industrialized than most of the West, but it's not as developed, right? So that's complex. And then you've got other countries like, for example, Saudi Arabia, they've got very high emissions per capita because they've got a very big oil industry, but they are you know, not seen as being a socially developed countries that don't have the more sophisticated systems of democracy and uh, long-standing civic institutions and all of the other features that we would associate to typically with developed economies. So how is how are, the, how are the distinctions between these different groups handled? I mean, I assume that both China and Saudi Arabia sit on the developing nations side, but I might be wrong. You are right. And uh, I would say that that is what I would say one of the kind of weaknesses of the current climate policy regime, because uh, there has no, been no major changes to that division of the developed and developing countries. And remember, this goes back to the early 90s and probably reflecting even the situation or development level in uh, even earlier than that. And that is more or less kept now. And actually, that is one of the very interesting results I get out of this paper, because I, I, what I do in a paper, one of the things I do in a paper is to compare, uh, like situation for, let's take China, you mentioned China. Because if you look at past sins <laughs> of emissions, one, a very important part of that is, well, when do you start counting? Do you start counting in when the Industrial Revolution started in, uh, let's say, around 1750? Or would you say, well, it's more like maybe a year 1900, or maybe when we really started to discuss climate policies globally in 1990. And for, for a country like China, that makes an enormous difference because the longer history you put in to the, these calculations, the more falls on US, the more sin, death falls on the US, less on China, relatively. So, so there's a very enormous change from... from well, Britain is perhaps yeah. an even better example because Britain's historic emissions per capita are really, really high. I think they're probably still the highest in the world. They certainly were until fairly recently because the Industrial Revolution started in the UK. And so it had, you know, kind of 100-year head start on pretty much everywhere else, right? And the US had a very small population when Britain's population was, you know, a substantial chunk of what it is today, right? Yeah, that's right. I know I should also emphasize that I'm not in this paper looking at the per capita emissions. I'm looking at emissions at the national level. Yeah, but the, the point is that the, if you take a country like the US, for example, then if there wasn't anybody in it, because it was quite empty, I mean, most of the US population growth was in the 19th and 20th centuries, right? So in the 18th right. century, the US was basically just a bunch of farmsteads on the East Coast, right? And uh, Right. But basically, what you see here is really, if you go that far past or into the history, it doesn't really matter much. You know, what is really important here is what happened after 1900, maybe even 19, after the Second World War in 1945, because that's where you really see the differences. Because, that, because in this period, you had a very fast growth. On well, that might be true globally, but it's, not, it's certainly not true for the edge cases, because Britain's carbon emissions were 
really significant by 1900. I mean, we used way more coal in the turn of the 19th, the, the 20th century than, than we did at the turn of the 21st century, right? Or around, you know, maybe a little bit later than that. You know, 20 by 2015, our coal use was kind of negligible compared to what it had been historically, right? Yeah, that's that's correct. But remember, also, it's not only a, an issue of how what the energy source you're using, but also how much energy you're using of coal, oil, gas, and all the other stuff. So, yeah, so I mean, like to take take for example, my house from standing at the moment, right? At the moment, I've got gas central heating, which has got a better carbon efficiency than coal, and I've also got you know, by the standards of when the house was constructed now over 100 years ago by quite a bit, um, quite good insulation. I've got, you know, decent loft insulation and I've got double glazed windows that are not drafty because we don't have um, open fires that draw and require the drafts anymore. So the fabric of my building has improved a great deal and, and the carbon efficiency of that building has also changed because I'm using a different fuel type. So the overall effect is that heating my home, uh, or what used to be someone else's home and is now my home, has changed dramatically over the last hundred years because of the, the change in the building fabric. So, you know, people were certainly using coal to heat houses of this type a hundred years ago to, and, you know, 150 years ago. So there is quite a lot of like historic responsibility for that. Uh, that, that carbon debt could be paid by somebody. Is it going to be paid by you know, British people who live today, what do we do about the fact that people who live in Britain aren't the same people that live in, lived in Britain? You know, countries probably, you know, 20% immigrant background now. And a lot of the people that lived in the UK in 1850 or 1870, their descendants have moved out to Australia and America and whatever, right? I should also emphasize here that, uh, you know, I, I look at the cumulative or the sum of past emissions. I, I'm not looking at one year compared to the next year to the next year. You know everything you you mentioned now that is really reflected in in also in the in the numbers or the results I get in the this paper because if you look at that's how you really started to compare global emissions at national level and starting counting in 1990 you see that actually that compared to starting 200 years before the share of the UK is one third of so basically the historic the proportion of global emissions right. that that's historically responsible for yeah, is reduced by yeah it's reduced by a third depending on where you set your baseline yeah exactly. so the, yeah, that's um, yeah. okay fine so the, the i mean the problem is that the the baseline uh, is the total amount of carbon in the atmosphere right so you can't just sort yep. of say well you know that was in 1750 so it doesn't matter i mean it, it does matter it's been of course changing the climate and you can also say well actually if you look at it in terms of heat content, then you could say that countries that started emission emitting earlier are actually more responsible because they're responsible for more climate damage, right? So Chinese emissions yesterday haven't actually done anything to global heat content, whereas Britain's emissions in 1750 have had 300 odd years to affect. The, yeah, the you could you can argue content. that, but remember, you can also argue that well, maybe before 1990 and or 1945 or, or whatever, <laughs> uh, you, you neither UK or other countries were, were or were clear on the fact that this is changing the temperature of the, the atmosphere and the world. So they didn't. Well, know that's debatable that. because I mean we've known about climate change for 150 years yeah. in the UK, right? But certainly not in 1750. <laughs> they no, did not understand no. it, right? Well, I think the, the first papers were in around 1860, weren't they? So that's, that's right. Started. That's right. Um, My point is that at the start of this period, 
what we did not know, if you go far further back, and first came on the political agenda globally, at least much, much later. Well, yeah, that I mean, that that's that may be true, but the point I'm making is that that doesn't necessarily matter because somebody's got to clean up those emissions, and it'd be quite easy for a politician in Ghana to say, well, you know, just because the British didn't know about it, you know, they've had the benefit of all this industrial development. Why should we be paying to clean up their mess? You know, they, they've they've got rich on this carbon. We didn't emit it, so the Brits can clean it up regardless of whether they knew what they were doing or not. I, I agree with you. Uh, do not make any position on this. What I d- really show in the paper is that how you define the death, you know, when you, as I said, when you start counting, the responsibility, <laughs> when does it enact, right? Start the responsibility. as a major impact on how you or how nations should reduce their or remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Because that is where I end up by saying comparing different scenarios. I I get your argument, but the point I'm making is that somebody's got to decide, as you're on the podcast, it's going to be you. So what is your personal recommendation as to how we should divvy up this responsibility? What do you think makes most sense? Well, uh, I favor the kind of uh, responsibility approach here because you could also uh, argue for the other you know the ability to pay and, and equal emissions and so on and because uh, also because uh, there is a fact here there's a fiscal fact that we have emitted over time too much carbon to the atmosphere and we are not likely to be able to reduce emissions fast enough to to make the two degree target so we have a death and we have to remove that death and that's what i kind of say in paper how much do we need to remove globally and then next question what is a kind of fair in a sense e- uh, way of uh, sharing out that debt and, and making those extra CO2 removals. And uh, so, so I think, it, so, so for me, it's more the issue on, well, when should we start counting? Well, I mean, there are different interests here, but I don't think it makes sense to start counting in 1750. because well, what, what I'm saying is that the year that you start counting stems from the values that you bring to, to play in the situation. So you mentioned cognizance, like do people know that they're responsible? And they did, they did. They didn't know in 1750, and that's you know that's part of what con- constitutes the whole responsibility debate. So, can you give me an idea of the principles that you think should apply to well, divide up responsibility? I was, I would say that I mean, there's one more argument here because we have had this very fast growth of global emissions in, in terms of carbon dioxide, basically or mostly after. 1945, the Second World War, and so on, that, that period. So, so uh, really, capture, you capture most of that if you talk about, let's say, as I have in the paper, one scenario is where you start counting in, in, in 1945. So, so that, that could be an argument for that, because that is really where we have the very fast growth of global emissions. Or you could uh, maybe argue that, that the 1990, because then really this came onto the global policy scene. Because I'm Remember, I'm not to- only talking about what is kind of the fiscal tax here. I'm also trying to think, well, what, is, what can fly in terms of a global treaty or under the Paris Agreement? What, what could be possible as a compromise that m- most countries of the world would sign on to? Well, let me give you a counterpoint, right? Let, let's take, uh, for example, a Kenyan politician looking at the history of the, uh, the world and trying to agree or disagree with how responsibilities divvied up he might say well look you know the brits the british colonized us in the last century and and a century before and you know we're not responsible for our emissions we weren't running our own affairs the british had the benefit of all this industrial development 
why are we even, you know, why is it even under consideration that we're responsible for cleaning up British emissions? Well, uh, first of all, uh, you can make, uh, of course, uh, a lot of, of arguments here, and that would depend on, and that would then depend on, uh, as as research shows, very much depend on where you're kind of interested into this game is, you know, how would you play, or how would this play out in terms of responsibilities for a single country? But uh, in terms of Specifically, if you look at the Mar- uh, sorry African countries, of course, they. In any case, what you think about uh, that that past, uh, those uh, emissions are very small. So I really don't think that will make much difference. Well, the African countries' emissions are very small, but the British emissions. Yeah, the British are. are they, they have been much bigger. That's correct. Yeah. The Even point I'm making is that. that well, yeah, I mean, if I'm an imaginary Kenyan politician, and I might say, "Well, stuff you, I don't want to pay any part of the British emissions." Now, not only were they responsible for all of the British emissions, right back to when they started emitting, but also they're responsible for all of our emissions because they were running our economy. And we were a colony. We weren't making our own decisions. Why should the relatively poor people in Kenya be responsible for not only Britain's emissions, but also the Britain's British colonies' emissions? They should take responsibility for the, the industrial benefit they have. We didn't get the and the cotton or whatever it was that was grown in Kenya. I don't know what the colonial reason for nicking Kenya was, but, um, you know, there would have been some economic benefit from it, right? So, you know, and, and there would have been some emissions from, from Kenya, even if it's not terribly industrialised. Somebody's got to pay him. And, and if I was a Kenyan politician, I'd probably be arguing quite vociferously, rightly or wrongly, that Britain should be paying this and not me. So, you know, what you're countering, eh? you don't think that that's the right argument. And so what, so how, how would you suggest giving it up? Well, uh, in in a sense, I mean, first of all, I can uh, understand this type of arguing, but the problem with this type of argument is that where do you put the limits? I mean, how far go are you going to go back? How much are you included in this in this these calculations? I mean, there are also people arguing that well, Europe or UK, for instance, or Norway should not uh, really be should be responsible for emissions in China because the China producing quite a lot of commodities that they sell to. To UK and Norway, for instance, should that be counted in? Yet, in one thing is that is very difficult calculation, of course, finding data and so on. But where do you stop? Because there is always, as I said, every country will will argue according to its interests. That's uh, that's what research. Well, is. they will, yeah. But the point I'm making is that if we're ever going to have CDR at a global scale, we've got to form some kind of view as to this responsibility. And I think that it's quite easy to make arguments that countries that have got larger historical responsibility should pay more. Uh, but I'm interested in, you know, some of the edge cases. So what if you have a situation where countries have become, you know, relatively a lot more rich and they can pay for carbon emissions, uh, carbon dioxide removal now, but they couldn't have done historically. So, you know, if you've got a, a country that, that's done very well out of the global economy, I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, Singapore kind of came from nowhere, didn't it? And, and it's, uh, you know, a pretty rich country now. You know, look, look at some of the kind of late 20th century oil states. They're not much different in terms of their wealth. You know, Saudi's probably comparably rich to much of Europe now. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have a, a long tradition before about the 60s. The Saudi economy wasn't much, there wasn't much going on at all. Uh, so, you know, how, how do we... How do we start dealing with that? I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not saying there are any easy answers, and we're not here to find easy answers because you know they, they won't be findable. But you know, just because the world's had a good old debate about 
emissions cutting and has got some kind of agreement going on, CDR is you know perhaps even more challenging because understanding whether you're responsible for cutting emissions today is you know it's it's more tangible, isn't it? You've got a factory, you can walk over to it and kick it. It's emitting carbon today, right? The idea that some people that I'm descended from, but many of whose ancestors then moved to America and carried on their life in America, were responsible for emissions when those people were in the UK. Uh, that's a lot more tenuous, right? The, the link between me as a living person today, and let's imagine, for example, I'm a Pakistani immigrant in the UK, like a, maybe a first or second generation Pakistani immigrant. I might say, well, look, you know, move to the UK now. My, my responsibility for that decision was affected by the fact that uh, Britain colonised my country, so I'm only sort of semi-free in that decision. You know, I've gone along a migration that's been established as a result of colonialism, and now I've turned up in this place because I was promised the opportunity to, you know, drive a bus, for example, like the London mayor's father was, and he lives in the UK because the British nicked his country, and then he came to live in the UK, and his son is now running London. So it gives you a pretty real example. So what emissions is he responsible for? How, how are we going to allocate his personal responsibility in this debate? So I think Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor, is a very genuinely very interesting example because I think he personally encapsulates a lot of the principles that are at stake here and what's important and about, about allocating his responsibility. So how would you look at that case? So I know your research doesn't go down to a personal level, but it's still the principles still apply. So if you could touch on how you might unpack that that would be very helpful yeah i uh, i agree with you in the sense that this is more tangible because really you cannot avoid to look at future uh, sorry past emissions into this because talking about the debt and you have to do some additional efforts right and of course then then all these all these histories and developments come up you can also uh, you can then also argue of course well to what degree am i responsible for my emissions for instance for my forefathers my my grandfathers, etc., going back. You know, to what degree am I responsible for that? Because I have had obvious benefits from that, you know, in terms of development of Norway and welfare state and all that has developed. So, so there's a, a very difficult questions that arise in, in, in that sense. And just to illustrate also how difficult this is, again, back to China, you know, because China wants to be in a position. They do not want to be defined as in a developed country because then I know that there will be more expectations on what they contribute, both in cutting emissions and CO2 removal. That, yeah, that potential is going to get harder and harder to sustain. Yes, it right? will. I mean... Because I show, for instance, in this paper that if you look at the sin, <laughs> past sins, also for China, as a share of the global sin, is it's growing very fast because they have this, you know, the highest emissions nationally in, in the world. And per capita, actually, at kind of European... I mean, and, uh, another, another interesting case... Or another interesting aspect of the case that you haven't really touched on is the population structure, right? So right. China has got quite an old population, whereas somewhere like Indonesia, for example, has got a much younger population structure. Places like Indonesia and Vietnam are, you know, to some extent, quite industrial countries now, right? A lot of things have got, you know, you've, you've only got to look at the labels and the products you buy. It's not uncommon to see made in Vietnam or made in Indonesia. So these are not, you know, just... Uh, rice paddies cows pulling plows you know that the many parts of them are pretty developed now right so those economies exist but they've got a very young population structure and if you're you know an average age of, of somebody in 
southeastern asia might be as young as say 15 right so if you're 15 you might think well look you know i i've I've been born in a time where everybody knew about climate change it's going to affect me very strongly because i live in the tropics you know why am i responsible for any of this you know as i live in industrial country today but i you know i didn't ask to be born here i could have been born anywhere and just introduces a whole bunch of complex but variables and complex aspects to the you know, philosophy of who's responsible, right? Really, uh, you're very right on that. And, you know, I, I would even say that the kind of the kind of demographic, let's say, aspect of this is almost never discussed. Because we know, I mean, if you take this as a scientist on this, you say that, well, emissions at the national level is, 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 is the per capita emissions multiplied by the population or size of the population, how that develops over time, of course. So we know that in my numbers, since I only look at the national level, Obviously, you can explain some of the changes here from population going up or growing more in some countries and, and other countries and so on. So, so obviously, that is an important factor that I don't capture in this paper, but there are some other papers that have looked into that. And I think also that is not only the age of the population, of course, but that is related, but also the size of the population. I, so I also feel that that is something one needs to get them, let's say, a better grip on in terms of... of, of uh, yeah, of uh, how you share out the... Yeah, well, one aspect of the population structure question is that you might take a country with a declining population like Japan, right? So mm. Japan's got a very... Japan and Korea have probably got among the world's worst facility crises, right, at the moment, mm. depending on whether you view it as a crisis that people aren't having enough babies or there are only too many. But um, people in Japan and Korea really don't have very many children at all, right? The population's crashing. Now, Europe, in many parts of Europe, for example, Italy, have a not dissimilar situation, but it's masked by massive immigration, right? So the practical consequences are much lower, right? But if you're in Japan, you might turn around and say, well, look, you know, this, this country has got a very high historical emissions, but there's hardly anybody here now. So what are you expecting this tiny? I mean, Japan in sort of 50 years time from now might have somewhere around a core of the population that it, that it had in its peak in sort of the 90s, right? So are you really going to expect Japanese people who might not be rich by global standards at that point? I mean, not not least because there's so many elderly people to take care of because of the demographic implosion that they're experiencing, right? So Japan might be a relatively poor country by 2050. I mean, certainly by 2070, it could be conceivably very poor by global standards, right? And, you know, somebody moving into retirement in Japan might be facing some pretty lean times and they might quite reasonably say well you know this country used to have a lot of people in it we had a lot of carbon emissions late in the 20, 20th century but you know i'm i wasn't born then and i'm not responsible for those emissions and i can't afford to clean them up because i don't live in a rich country anymore so how do we address that uh, very hard <laughs> i'm afraid but but I, one idea you know uh, forward here is one of the the um, the um principles I mentioned that is not really as, let's say, as hot or at least debated, and I don't use it in this paper, that is the equal rights to emissions. And for instance, if you look at India, they are very keen on using that principle because it means that over some adaptation time, so to speak, you should have equal rights for emissions. So if you implemented that equal right per emission, capita, and of course, you could kind of compensate both for negative or population increase and decrease. So that, that could be one way of kind of approaching that for the future. Yeah, but that course, doesn't... No, it doesn't. No, 
I see your point in terms of uh, past sins. It doesn't yeah, really it's completely that yeah, historical. It just assumes that people are like. Oh. So, for example, if you take me, right, and I I live in a house that's about 125 years old. Okay, so I've got the benefit of living in a house that's been built for 125 years, and I've got a road outside that was built, you know, longer ago than that, and was resurfaced, you know, fairly recently, and a bridge that's 200 years old next to that, and it was again resurfaced fairly recently so you've got this whole sort of stack of complex historical emissions that i'm benefiting from and if you contrast me with you know some 15 year old kid living in a new suburb in indonesia that's been built not because people want the lap of luxury but just because there are a lot more people to build houses for then he might say well you know i didn't get any of this stuff given to me you know my society didn't have a load of houses we had to build them and we had to bear the emissions so you guys have basically inherited a load of free stuff from your forefathers and you know that's all very well but you've got to pay your carbon debt mate i'm not paying it for you so it's 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 easy to say well we want a you know the same allowance for everybody everyone's got the same carbon situation but it is it just isn't the same is it you know if you've got a person who's got to build the whole infrastructure from scratch there's a huge amount of carbon emissions that they're going to have to deal with providing that i don't personally have to deal with because everything's done for me yeah, I mean, this is actually a kind of aspect I get back to all the time in, in doing climate policies and economics, and namely, what do you put on the table and what do you not put on the table? Or in other words, what do you put into the box you are discussing? Because that there is no uh, one answer to that. There are different opinions, there are different perceptions, there are different interests on that. But at the end of the day, you know, I've been doing this for over 35 years. I would say one needs to be pragmatic because you cannot make a system according to what you're talking about now, too complex. Because it's you also need to be able to kind of have a broad acceptance on that, both national and internationally. So it has to build on some simple principles. And of course you need then you would need some 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 obviously you need some com- compromises both nationally and internationally. So there's so much you could put into this, but if you put try to put too much into it, I don't think it's there is any chance it will fly. So in terms of actually getting a system agreed, what's your expectation of the most likely agreement that's going to be reached? I mean, what factors would it take into account? Would it take into account immigration, population pyramid issues, historic emissions back to a certain date? You know, how, how do you think that people are likely to agree on all of this stuff? Well, if, if you go in, along this path, I mean, one possible scenario is that this is really not put on really on the table, right? It's kind of is back in... It's back office. It's it's really not explicitly discussed because everybody has a you know say a risk of losing something on this, and it's very hard as we have discussed now. Very hard, really. What do you include in these calculations? But if it comes up on the table, I would I would definitely think then you would need to decide when you start counting the. Uh, the past sin because so you think that it's just going to be done on a simple country emissions basis that people aren't going to take into no account, i'm not saying that you know, but migration think, and stuff like that i think you start with the when do you start counting this you have to have that if you want any numbers okay so so that, you that, think we should start know. counting around the second world war approximately right maybe 1990 because again what can you get broad global support for you know we're talking about this being a part of the global climate regime then second one, I think... Well, it, I'd have had, I've had 15 years of emissions, by the way, or nearly 15 years of emissions by 1990. So, you know, personally, I've benefited quite a lot from... Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree. But I, I, I think the Second World... Well, the, the reason I think the Second World War is 
potentially a better cutoff is because you know the rough approximation everybody that experienced the second world war is dead now right you know obviously there are a few survivors of that period of history but but it's increasingly less relevant right so that that would seem to me to be a fairly obvious place to to take that that from right um, and I can also... agree to that. I can agree to that. Then on the population, I think there is there is possibility that population will include it in in let's say moving forward on such calculations if they really come onto the table. And that is for one important reason you mentioned, namely that while you have a very different demographic development in in various parts of the world, if you compare, for instance, some African countries with the Japan, Italy, South Korea, and so on, it's very very difficult or very very different. So, so well, it's very in different. some way you have to capture that for the future, right? Yeah, well, exactly. And that's why I want to go through this, because it's a genuinely interesting thing to discuss, right? So let's assume that we take it from the end of the Second World War, just for argument's sake, right? Now, uh, how would we deal with things like population growth and migration and stuff like that? Because you know, population growth tends to, dil- t- tends to in- increase uh, the responsibility of historic emitters because they tend to not to have the big population growth right whereas if you've got a a country like kenya for example you're going to have more people available today to pay a more limited carbon debt than somebody like japan right so population growth kind of benefits you all all other things considered as long as those people are growing to adulthood so they're economically productive right but then migration the effect of migration is that citizens have the capacity to kind of run away from their carbon there so if you've got a relatively poor country like you know quite a lot of eastern europe has become somewhat depopulated right so some of them have been, were quite industrialized and they had a lot of pretty dirty industries in the days of the soviet union and then a lot of that population migrated to the western europe so the, the people who are left behind for, form this kind of rump state a very car- high carbon there so what how do you suggest that we deal with those kind of cases? Yeah, uh, I had a complexity there, is it? To, to some extent, as, but that, weren't even locally responsible for their emissions, right? Because they were directed by the Soviet Union rather than being, you know, responsible internally for their domestic affairs, their country, right? Yeah. Uh, again, I think you need some clean, simple principles doing this. And to me, I would say that migration is also demographics. So there is population size within each country. And what you do now, you make two, if you make the decisions along, let's say, two issues at least, is that, okay, let's say we start counting in, in 1945. Then we made a decision on, 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 on a kind of cutoff and, you know, kind of past since. How, how far go we back, are we going back on that? We have made a decision that, if you can agree on that. Second, I think that on the population issue, I think that will come. What you can do is, of course, to do an update. You need to do this per capita. As I, you know, I did it only nationally here. Of course, there are limitations on that. So if you want to go into these issues we're talking about now, you need to do it per capita. And then you need to update that regularly, maybe every 10 years or so, in the future agreements. Then you can really adjust for the, the demographic developments in uh, across countries. You'll have to guide me through that again. I'm not quite sure what you're proposing there. On this, on on the demographics. Well, uh, uh, I'm. Uh, I think it's important also to look at the per capita emission picture when you compare countries, as we as we have discussed, right? Not only well, yeah. That. Let's take let's let's drill it down to some practical examples, right? 
So let's assume that we're going to start a large scale CDR around sort of 2030, 2040. It's not going to be tomorrow, is it? Right. Yeah, yeah. So if, if we take if we take con- countries that have country that's relatively affluent, but recently so, a country that is relatively poor and with a fast growing population and a country that's kind of oldie worldy economy. So you might compare United Arab Emirates, just is like newly affluent. And I think it's had quite a steeply growing population. A country like Kenya, for example, where it's not had much historic emissions, but it's had a growing population. And a country like Japan, where, you know, it's heyday has long since passed and it's although it's still an affluent country it is in terms of its global position is falling relative to a lot of other nations and along with its population so picking those three examples how do you think we should conceptualize responsibility well given the, the principles i uh, kind of argue, argued for now it's not really so difficult we, if you agree on starting in 1945 then then we are talking about how does per capita emissions develop over time after that and, and in, into the future now, then, then basically there are two factors at play here. If population is increasing, it means that you will have a lower, lower responsibility to, to, um, to CO2 removal. If your economy is growing, you will have higher responsibility to, to CO2 removal. So it would be actually the how this plays out. Well, that's not quite true, is it? Because, well, look, you're saying that if if the economy is growing, you've got higher responsibility for CDR. Now, that's true to an extent because you're emitting more today and therefore you're going to have to remove more tomorrow. But if your economy is growing, the other effect is that you you have a low level of historical responsibility for emissions and you have an affluent economy. So, in principle, people like that should be best place. You know, countries like, for example, the UAE, which has become rich relatively recently, could be um, uh, could, could do quite well in this in this situation. They, they, you know, they've got a lot of money to pay for things, and they haven't got a lot of CDR to do. Right, so they've got a fairly easy ride of it. Okay, but it becomes a lot more challenging with countries like Japan, where they've got a larger historical carbon debt and a relatively smaller population paying the sins of their grandfathers. Right, that becomes a lot more challenging. So. How would we do? How would we create a system that was fair to say Japan, right? Well, but then, then you made a choice, I think, implicit in, in your argument, because this is also then an issue of, as I have done here, I stopped the sin calculation in 2021, currently, right? So I'm only looking at what has been emitted earlier, right? Up to okay, but that's a bit arbitrary because we're not ready to do CDR yet. So why is no, it no. even sensible? But to this, do is, this is my argument. In the paper, and you also, I think, uh, think about this in order. We stop counting now, and that sin you have to share out on the, the nations in the future, and then now also according to what the economic growth will be and, and population development will be. But remember, there is one more uh, option here, namely, well, maybe we should do a new calculation in 2030 on the sins and looking at. Well, that, that uh, seems logical. T- yeah, yeah, because that's an option, right? Logically. That's an option because you can you can you can also calculate the since adding the last seven years, right, or eight years, right? Well, I would actually say it's probably better to go back yeah. or go further a bit forward into the future. I mean, I think twenty thirty, the idea that we're going to be doing multi gigaton scale CDR by twenty thirty is a bit ambitious, really. I mean, we're middle of the way through twenty twenty three at the moment, and we're doing you know there's there's only like one kind of mid sized 
CDR plant working at the moment for direct air capture. And there's a few other schemes doing biochar and various things like that. But, you know, the, the scale of industrial development, we, you know, we're kind of not much further than Ben's pootling around the park in his car, right? We're nowhere near at the kind of Henry Ford level, are we? And absolutely, from, uh, absolutely. That, so, that, that so is. So, looking at it from the, in terms of in terms of a technology transition, Benz was driving his car around in what about eighteen eighty something like that, right? Henry Ford was like nineteen twenty, oh. so that was like a forty year gap between those two, right? So, you know, we ain't going to be doing that in seven years, are we? No, no. You remember in my title is said what if, and that on, only not only you know basing this on past emissions, but also if you do all these massive amounts of uh, emission reductions and. Clearly, uh, you know, I, I kind of assume in the paper that we are able to, to cover this debt in 20 years from 2030 until 2050. Of course, that is not realistic. And, you know, the numbers I come up with also is, for instance, that the U.S. would have to remove some 10 gigatons CO2 annually, you know, in this period, which is 20% yeah, of global I mean, emissions. You know, who, who thinks yeah, that uh, is possible? But remember, this is also to illustrate not only the kind of importance of how you do the calculations, but also to say that, well, we are talking about enormous amounts of CO2 removal here. If we really take this here, it's because we are, we are reducing emissions too slowly and there's a huge debt from the past. Yeah, there, there are. All, the point I'm making is that you're, you're picking a baseline for the start of removals that I just think is implausible. I mean, I think that you have to have a conversation based on, you know, if, you, if you're not doing, say, 10% of the annual global emissions, then you're not really started CDR to any meaningful extent. I mean, you're not even removing today's emissions, let alone historic emissions. So I think 2035, 2040 is about as early as you could expect that realistically to start happening, right? You know, we're still going to be flying around an airline as in 2030, right? And, you know, we won't have fully, you know, I, I put in, just talking about my own life, you know, my, my professional career is in real estate, right? And so I'm fitting gas boilers or have fitted gas boilers in the last year. I expect to be in place for another 10 years, right? You know, sadly, it's not a commercial decision I want to make, but it's one I have made. And, and I'd expect those assets to be in place for another 10 years. And so, you know, we're not going to be off fossil fuels fully within 10 years time, right? And so, absolutely, we, you know, we can't, we can't really expect to start CDR at scale within that type, kind of timescale. I think that 2035 is the absolute earliest practical time. So looking from sort of the Second World War to 2035, that's, you know, that's roughly the timescale that we might consider to be sensible, right? And yeah. so that's where we have to sort of start thinking about divvying it up. But you've picked some pretty odd timescales because you're not casting back historical responsibility very far. You're picking 1990 as a baseline and then you're starting CDR or considering starting CDR much earlier than I think most people would argue is practical. So I'm just trying to understand. I'm not saying that your reasoning is worthless, but I'm just trying to understand whether your numbers have any value because you've compressed the timescale on both ends to the extent where it, it doesn't seem to be particularly practical. Yeah, but I also I also do calculations on 1750 and 1900. It's not only 1945 and 1990. I do all the four. And okay, and then, but, right? but how far... How far are you setting the future analysis forward? I mean, I know you've discussed the 1750 thing, but you know, how far are you, are you assuming that CDR might start scale in 2050, no, I, 2060, I, or what? I, I agree. This is very optimistic. Okay, uh, but remember, how do I, do I frame this? I'm talking about what would be needed to to meet the two degree target according to the Paris Agreement, right? And I look at some sensible carbon budget from the IPCC, and I look at uh, some carbon traction tracker 
scenarios, etc. And and I'm trying to are we likely to be able to 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 reduce of emissions and and including also some 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 CO2 removal until 2100, you know. And then I said, well, there's a, there is going to be a huge gap here, a rest, a death. And so we need to, 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 to handle that. And of course, I agree, 2030, starting this is, is very optimistic, but it really doesn't change the main issue here, namely, well, there is this death. We have to take care of that over the next decades. And how, who is responsible for that? That's my main well, issue. Me, and I'm saying, well, let me explain why I disagree with you on that 2030 thing, right? Because you, you, as a crude approximation, you're not going to be doing much CDR until you've decarbonized the economy, right? You know, not, not least because it's cheaper generally to do decarbonization than it is to do CDR. There's only a few kind of edge cases where it's worth emitting on an ongoing basis, like transatlantic flights or whatever, where it just really isn't that practical to do it. I mean, unless you're counting sin fuels and looping your economic calculations for sin fuels, then you have planes flying around on uh, fuels have been made by direct air capture that's not foolish but let's assume that we'll keep the relatively similar technology base uh, moving forward as we've got now for these edge cases and we're going to be continuing with jet aircraft we are going to be using carbon-based fuels for those edge cases now until we've got rid of things like home heating which can be decarbonized and people are moving to electric cars which can be decarbonized and we're moving to electric steel production, which can be decarbonized, and CCS cement, which can be decarbonized. You know, direct air capture doesn't, doesn't make any sense, really. Now, what I'm saying is that by the time we've got to, you know, say 2050, when decarbonization might be conceivably, you know, quite well underway, it doesn't start to make a lot of sense to talk about historic emissions. So what I'm trying to draw you on is by, by the time that we get to, say, 2050, where we might be able to have a, a, a kind of rear view mirror view of climate change, rear view mirror view of emissions, then what, what will we be thinking about in 2050 in terms of dividing our responsibility? Let's assume that current trends continue and you know, we're not in a situation where we're going to be living on Mars or anything like that. But you know, if, if countries are collapsing in population like Korea and Japan, they're not going to sort of suddenly turn it around in in uh, the next 15 years because these are longer term trends so let's assume that the trends that we we see continue to the you know to, to reasonable extents how is the debate going to look in 2050 when we when cdr becomes a meaningful part of the carbon budget on a global scale because looking back from today's day or from 2030 it's kind of meaningless because that's not when we're going to be having a conversation is it now I need to be emphasize something here because if you add uh, calculations of the sin or the depth currently, that is 2021 with available data, I could have made the same calculations and basically gotten exactly the same results if I had chosen 2050 till 2070 as compared to 2030 uh, till 2050. So that is actually not an essential part of, of the results as according to how I have designed what is important is that I assume that this is done over 20 years because that, that, that also de- then, of course, defines how much or how intensely the US and China and other countries have to do these uh, CO2 removal activities. But uh, actually, timing in terms of decades, as according to how I set up this, is not really important for the results. Well, yeah, look, I, I understand that as you move the time window, it doesn't change in principle how you go about running the calculations. That's not something that I 
that I don't appreciate. What I'm saying is that the, the, the challenge is that it's, it's not that your methodology suddenly doesn't work if you start at a different date. It would just be seen as being, you know, politically very much less relevant. So let's assume an extreme case like that through a combination of migration and, um, and demographic collapse, that Japan has got, you know, maybe as low as 15 million people by 2050. I mean, that's pretty extreme, but, you know, becomes dominant in the debate then, doesn't it? Like, you know, these carbon carbon dioxide removal isn't cheap. You know, you've got a large degree of historical responsibility that, that a country like Japan will be bearing. And if its population is, you know, pushing a tenth of the size, 2050, that it was in 1990, stretching the boundary credibility, but Let's just set it up like that to frame the debate. Then you could say, well, look, my maths works just fine. You know, we can calculate the historical responsibility for Japan just the same as we did in our earlier equations. But the Japanese are just going to not have it, right? They're just going to say this is completely unsustainable to ask us to pay this money. You know, half of our population's left and they all live in Korea now or wherever it is they've migrated to, right? So the, the point I'm making is like when we do a sort of trend level analysis of this sort of stuff, we have to get to a point where we're having a politically sensible conversation. Just because you can compute the numbers doesn't mean the solution is politically viable. So I'm trying to draw you on, if we imagine ourselves in a world of 2050, with 2050 technology and 2050 problems and 2050 population, where where does the debate go politically? Because I think that 2050 is a useful day because I'm not saying we won't do CDR at a scale in 2040. I think that's quite plausible. But the point I'm making is a combination of decarbonisation and CDR scaling probably won't take place simultaneously until about 2050. So CDR becomes the then the dominant part of the carbon economy in that sort of 2050 timescale, whereas it's not the dominant part of the CDR, the carbon economy before 2050. So how, how would you expect the debate to be framed at that point in time? First of all, I agree that, of course, I have simplified uh, a lot of these assumptions here. I'm not lifting all the stones in, in, this, in this paper here. My advice or my thinking on that would be that, uh, and this is going back to work I did in the 90s on, on, let's say, equity in terms of global treaties on reducing emissions, right? What, what one of the learnings I had done was that, okay, you have this uh, ability to pay equal emissions and responsibility uh, fairness principles. And there are, there are three interesting aspects of that, or two interesting aspects of that, and one being that, well, they all pull basically in the same direction. Now, you are arguing that may, maybe not that is, it's more complicated in terms of CO2 removal and going into the future. And I agree, I agree on that. There are added issues coming up. So intention would then be to say that, okay, uh, given, the, you know, the population development and what we discussed now, be it too, too simplistic and not be really politically feasible globally to, to, to say this is only that you pay so much attention or only attention to historical responsibility, as I have done in the paper, right? Then the argument would be that, okay, if you want really to have something to build on that could work done, you also need to factor in uh, maybe both the other principles, and especially the equal emission per capita. In other words, you cannot put too much emphasis on uh, past death. And, and, and you could also then add the issue of, uh, you know, well, GDP per capita or ability to pay. So actually you need, let's say, let's put more different in saying that, well, this is more complex, especially when you're talking different demographic, demographics into the future. So we need to have 
you can't have more than a pod. Maybe you need two legs or three legs to handle this. Okay. Otherwise, yeah, otherwise it will be too simplistic. And I agree with you. You know, of course, it's not going to, to fly probably in the future because you miss out some very important issues. But again, I'm not trying to lift all the stones in this paper. This is a what if it's an experience. Okay. So, so basically, show, show some of the factors okay. that, that, that are at play here. Okay. So let me just summarize where I think we've got to, right? So what you're saying is that you're isolating historical emissions over various time periods, but you accept the alternative point that trends like, for example, the relative affluence of countries at the time that you come to divvy up responsibility for carbon, plus the the demographic trends in population, both you know population growth and migration, have a role to play potentially in a future debate about divvying up CDR, right? So right. you kind of laid some groundwork for this debate, but you're not attempting to to have the last word on it, and you accept that it's a a complex scenario and one that the the decisions are likely to be made time somewhat further in the future than your paper envisages. And therefore, there'll be the, the, these issues of demographic change, migration, and all of that will play, you know, in, in absolute terms, they'll play a bigger role and thus will be harder to ignore, right? Um, yeah, because I, yeah, I agree on that. And, and just also to mention that there are very few papers in peer-reviewed journals on this, maybe three, four papers that really uh, attack the same issues as I have. So this is really a very early start on this complex discussion an excellent opportunity for some uh, bold grad students to get going and start writing some decent papers on the subject so uh, right there's other stuff i want to talk to you about but just going to have a small amount of administrivia we don't remind people generally to subscribe to the podcast but it very much helps us and you we hope if you do please also do share or promote or criticize us on social media it's useful to get a debate going in that regard uh, one personal point, as people might have heard over the last couple of uh, episodes, I don't sound very good at the moment. I'm not ill, you know, I've not got the flu, just got something wrong with my voice and, and no one's quite sure what it is at the moment. So you might have to put up with a croaky reviewer too for the foreseeable future, but hopefully that won't last for too long. Um, so back to the uh, the issue in hand, I just want to get an understanding of who you wrote the paper with, what your kind of work situation is, you know, what your lab's like and what your your future is like likely to be in this field. So feel free to just jabber on for a bit and fill us in about life, the universe and everything from your personal perspective. Well, um, uh, I'm really trying to make a contribution of what I see as the kind of essential issues in, in, in terms of climate policies and really not only accepting that these are huge challenges, but also trying to find really these constructive and fruitful feasible ways of handling this both nationally and globally and there are so many so many challenging and complex issues in doing this uh, or researching on these issues so i'm just kind of chosen a few i think co2 removal as we talked about in this podcast is a very uh, very important because it's it's i mean there's no way we can meet the, the targets unless we do a lot of this and it's and as and as we have probably shown here also is that this is there are added complexity it's more complex doing this than than removing sorry than cutting emissions moving forward so there is there is efficiency issues there is how does this impact on the climate different affects different interests across the world etc cetera, etc cetera. so there's so many 
issues that ne- really need more research and, 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 and knowledge generation. But of course, at the end of the day, this is also up to the decision makers and politicians you really to, to make a system that is both, uh, I would say, really is efficient and robust attacking these issues and, and also can fly in, in the sense that we'll have broad acceptance. That, that is the kind of field I'm, I'm working on. <laughs> yeah, I get the logic of why you want to work on it. I'd just like to hear a bit more about who else you are on the paper with and what, you know, what lab you're part of and how your work is funded. People care about the academic process on this podcast. It's, you know, a podcast that is mainly, I think, appealing to academics and therefore they want to, you know, hear other people's working experience, get an understanding of what, you know, what, whether the grass really is greener on the other side of the fence, right? Yes. Well, first senior researcher at the CICERO Center for International Climate Research. Uh, we are an independent uh, foundation. What does, he, what does the abbreviation say? Center for International Climate uh, for International Climate Research abbreviation. And, it's, and where is that based? And it's it's it based in uh, Oslo, Norway. And we are funded uh, from uh, mostly from research money. Personally, I have most funding from the Research Council of Norway. I'm collaborating with uh, some colleagues, but also with uh, other um, environmental research institutes in Norway and also with some, let's say, industry groupings and some public uh, or government departments on on these issues. Okay. And so who did you write the paper with? No one. <laughs> I'm the, oh, I'm the sole author of this paper. Okay. Well, you can tell, you can tell how much research I do for this podcast by, by that alone. Right. Well, fine. I think we've covered your paper. We've covered a very complex, naughty debate around it. We've also had a little chat about, you know, your personal background, which is all very interesting. Uh, so, you know, thanks very much for covering all of that. Is there anything else you want to discuss while you're on or, or not? No, only that I hope really more researchers take on uh, these issues here because they are so important and they are, will be more important and also in political terms yeah. in the future. And we need a broad disciplines in terms of, of analysing these issues too. It's not only about yeah. economics and uh, political science, whatever. I certainly hope so, because um, your paper has really only scratched the surface, this issue. And you know, as you rightly point out, there are significant limitations on the timescale and the scope of the information that you're taking into account to make the decisions and recommendations you're making in the paper. So obviously, because I'm a reviewer too and I'm spiteful, I don't care that it's the first one of the first papers in this discipline to look at this very important issue. What I'm looking for is the petty deficiencies and uh, the small ways in which it doesn't provide in and of itself the entire canon of literature we need on this discipline. And due to my uh, unanswered questions, I'm going to spitefully reject your paper. And thank you for coming on. I hope that some grad students will come and join your mission to solve exactly how we're going to divvy up the problem and then we can go to politicians and say sign here it's all done for you <laughs> right well unless you've got anything else to say before your execution you will now be formally defenestrated <laughs> tossed out of our gleaming headquarters and splat into the car park along with all of the other rejected interview guests that we have summarily executed at the end of a podcast thanks for coming on well thank you andrew Thank you for having me on the podcast. And I really enjoy all these discussions because there are so many challenges ahead of us. Great. Thanks for coming on and participating. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.